Hey everyone, this is Jen Fisher, Associate Pastor of Forefront Brooklyn in NYC. In episode four, we introduced you to our friend, Rabbi Daniel Bronstein, who taught us about the Hebrew word Midrash. Rabbi Dan came to Forefront a couple of weeks ago to teach us about the book of Job, and we jumped into some Midrashim together from the ancient rabbis. We made a podcast out of that night, and you get to join us in the conversation. But before we dive into that episode, I want to invite you to a series of events we're hosting in NYC called Scatter. It's Holy Week, and we want to invite you to three intimate, hidden worship gatherings happening on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. To find out more or RSVP, please visit ForefrontNYC.com scatter. We hope you enjoy today's conversation with Rabbi Dan. Job is probably one of the best-known books of the Bible. In the Jewish Bible, in the Torah, the Tanakh, it's in the third section called Kituvim, which means writings, along with things like Song of Songs and Book of Esther. And unlike other books uh, in this section of the Jewish Bible, the book of Job is not really associated with a particular holiday. So, for example, um, it's actually right before Good Friday this year, the holiday of Purim, um, which is a celebratory holiday. We read, um, um, we, we read from the Book of Esther and Passover. We read from the Song of Songs. But Job doesn't have that particular valence. It's not connected with a particular holiday. Um, just to sort of tell you where I'm coming from, um, I do come from a, a, a liberal branch of Judaism. Um, so my perspective on scripture is that it's divinely inspired. So I believe that uh, the text that I have, the Torah, is uh, divinely inspired. It's inspired by God, but it's been filtered through human beings. Um, and once you take that step, and I'm not telling anybody what step to take or what they should believe, but once you take that step, uh, you know, certain things in a way become... Um, less complicated because uh, we all know that human beings are imperfect. So there's things in text that we don't understand or that we don't agree with or we don't like and we can uh, consign human agency to those things. And Job, um, I was telling Jennifer ahead of time that uh, one of the things I can't do because there's so many different opinions um, about uh, when Job was written or who wrote it or which parts were written then and one could easily get sucked into a, a conversation for a whole month uh, just arguing about the authorship. And um, I guess where I'm coming from is uh, what we have now is what we have now. And I'm not really, there was a certain stage of modern biblical criticism that tried to sort of take apart texts and analyze everything and what came from this and who wrote that and who, so I'm not really going to concern myself with that. Um, one, because I don't think we know all the answers, two, because I think it's uh, excruciatingly boring after a certain point, and who wants that? And um, um, there's different Jewish traditions about uh, the book of uh, Job, but predictably there's lots of disagreements in Jewish tradition. Uh, there's one tradition, actually, that Moses wrote it, uh, and that he wrote it in the context of uh, the House of Israel still being in bondage, um, but there's a lot of different views, and um, I just, by happenstance, uh, a few, uh, about two months ago, I guess it was, um, I, I heard a, a talk 
um, and I was trying to decipher my notes by uh, a scholar who's doing a whole new translation. And uh, he had in front of us a document with about five different translations and talking about who was wrong and who was right. So we can get uh, sort of um, uh, pulled into that, but I want to avoid that sort of nitpicking and sort of look at the broader message. And I also want to um, just be clear that, um, um, you know, I'm sharing my thoughts and I'm not asking you to uh, agree with me. Um, certainly, I wouldn't have to say this if it was my own community because everybody would disagree. But uh, just uh, in, in case uh, I have a feeling that this community is a little bit more polite. So um, uh, I'm not telling anybody what to think. I'm just sharing my views. Um, it's probably not going to differ from uh, the understanding that many of you have. Um, you look at the book of Job, what's it all about? Um, one, we can all agree on uh, bad stuff happens, terrible stuff can happen, and uh, tragedy happens, and sometimes in the case of Job, multiple tragedies happen, you know, one thing after the other after the other, horrible things that nobody should go through. Um, and, uh, and I think that... Um, Part of the power is, uh, if not ourselves, uh, we know, I think most of us know people who've experienced multiple tragedies um, and, and just unfairness in life. And I think that's why Book of Job is so resonant uh, among all the different books. But I also um, agree with the point of view um, that uh, in certain respects, uh, the, uh, you know, and I, I heard the scholar say it, and uh, he comes from a much more traditional perspective than me, but he said it, and I agreed with him. He referred to the book of Job as subversive, or other people would call it radical. Why? Um, some of the theology here. Um, and if you look at some parts of the uh, Torah, some parts of the Jewish Bible, there's the idea of reward and punishment, right? And um, if you do good things, you're going to get rewarded from it. Reward, excuse me, rewarded for it, whether, you know, in this life or the next, right? And Job offers uh, a different view because it seems to me we start out from the place of really bad stuff happens and um, we have uh, Job's friends mostly not being very helpful. By the way, if you're ever trying to comfort somebody who's sad, don't act like his friends. Don't have a theological argument with somebody who's grieving or sad. Don't lecture somebody. That's the way not to do that. That's a side editorial comment, uh, which you can, you can take as you wish. Um, but ultimately, what happens, um, just to sort of cut to the chase here, I think it's arguable that uh, Job ends up in a place where he realizes that maybe he's not going to be rewarded at all, either for his goodness and or for his suffering. And he ends up in a place, you remember at the very end, he, he prays on behalf of his friends who wronged him. So he ends up in this place of still being able to good, be, be good without the sense of, uh, okay, I'm going to get rewarded. And um, when he achieves that state of being uh, good, of acting in goodness, he's able to encounter God, right? Because he gets this revelation from God. God talks to him directly. So it's only after this internal transformation that he's fully able to understand his own limitations. We get to the end of uh, uh, the book of Job where 
really the idea, I think, is uh, that we as human beings can't possibly understand uh, the universe on a certain level, which is something that I personally uh, agree with. I think there's certain things that are beyond us. And um, you do have in the Jewish um, Bible um, places where it clearly says if you do this, if you do X, Y, and Z, everything's going to be fine. And if you don't, you're going to be punished. So you have that. But then, um, and I, I won't go over this, with this a whole separate talk, we have, uh, that's, that's in, in Judaism, the Jewish Bible is called the written Torah, the written tradition. But in Judaism, we also have what's called the oral tradition. And that's a whole other body of literature that's uh, at least over 2,000 years old that was passed on verbally until it started to be written down in the year 200. And um, the, the reason for writing it down, um, and sort of the first major text is called the Mishnah, which is also mostly the first code of Jewish law. Um, the, main th the main reason why I think you could argue they, write, they have to write it down in 200 is because Jews are being scattered all over the world and they don't want the traditions to be lost. But why do you have this oral tradition? You have this oral tradition because uh, the Bible is, uh, uh, although some people, you know, I hear all the time, oh, it's clear, it says this, it means this. Actually, the Bible is uh, not often, or often is not very clear. I mean, excuse me as I try and speak English tonight. Sometimes the Bible's not clear. Sometimes the Bible's not clear because literally we don't know how to translate some of the words. And uh, in a bunch of my classes, I talk about the whole problem of translation. Uh, I had a great seminar when I was in rabbinical school, a year-long seminar on the Christian Bible. And our instructor had us, uh, I wish I could remember who published this, but it was an edition of the Christian Bible with about nine translations right next to each other. So that's just within the Christian tradition. And uh, over here, just for reference, I have something called the New Jewish Publication Society Translation. Uh, new is 1950s, by the way. Um, and it's not my favorite translation, and there's been other Jewish translations as well. There's, I, I actually like the old JPS, sort of a more archaic English, which I think is more in valence with uh, the biblical Hebrew that's used. So my first point is we don't always know uh, what certain words mean, literally. Um, secondly, sometimes people find things in the Bible which they don't find particularly comfortable or appealing. Um, and sometimes you need to uh, interpret or reinterpret. And just sort of the classic examples, and maybe I did this a year ago, but uh, sort of the classic examples of what I'm talking about here is, uh, you know, the line that everyone knows, or lots of people know, and lots of people quote, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? And already, 2,200 years ago, uh, the, what we call the proto-rabbis, the ancestors of the rabbis, uh, interpreted it, or you could say reinterpreted that line to mean, okay, you shouldn't literally you know, say I accidentally knock out someone's eye, what's the point of then my eye being knocked out? So the rabbis interpret that uh, phrase to mean you should compensate somebody for injury. That's an interpretation uh, or a reinterpretation, but they felt the need to do that. Another example would be, um, which I use all the time, is when it talks about Yom Kippur, the biblical text, the Day of Atonement. Biblical text is very... Um, 
very terse. Um, and it says, uh, on this day you should afflict yourself. So you have to interpret what does it mean to afflict yourself. You could interpret that in all different types of ways. You know, sort of my stock line whenever I talk about this is, you know, uh, one, one thing for self-affliction for me would be being forced to uh, watch Three's Company for several hours uh, in a row without with, and being tied down. But anyways, um, but seriously, the rabbis interpret that to mean you should fast. But that's an interpretation. And um, sort of the general body of literature which uh, uh, the rabbis, or we call the sages, starting in, you know, over 2,000 years ago, but going into the present, is, uh, it was, you know, it's in the name Midrash. And Midrash means exposition or expounding. And there's different types of Midrash, or in the plural Midrashim. Sometimes you have Midrashim that were written um, in order to uh, take a particular say, legal material from the Bible and then apply it in a more concrete way. So, like the example I just gave you, uh, fasting. You know, and then it, it plays out, okay, what do you need to, what does fasting mean? Sometimes, though, um, the rabbis are bothered or upset by things that they see in the Torah, and they do radical reinterpretation. They're creating new traditions. That's what they're really doing in certain cases, being subversive in a way that the book of Job is subversive. And how is the book of Job arguably subversive or radical? Well, I mentioned this reward and punishment aspect, but also what does Job do throughout the book, which his friends admonish him for? He questions God, and he's angry, and he's upset with God. And if you think about it, at the end, there's sort of a semi-happy ending, but um, built into this is this questioning of God and questioning of why God does what God does. Very explicit questioning. So it's subversive in that way. Theoretically, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to accept whatever happens, and there's a reason for everything. And, you know, it sort of makes me think about uh, this friend of mine who died uh, almost a year ago, young guy with young son, uh, young wife. I did their wedding. I've known them for a long time. He died of a form of leukemia. You know, I was really, uh, and still am, really angry at God. I don't have a, a good answer for why that happened. I mean, you could come up. There's all kinds of theologies that you could come up with. None of them particularly satisfy me. So um, I think what you have in Job, or in my opinion, what you have in Job, is uh, acknowledgement that it's also okay to be angry with God. It's also okay to question God. And we're going to get into that shortly via a few different Midrashim that I picked out. The whole literature of Midrash goes on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, some of, sometimes Midrash is found in larger books like the Talmud, which is a major book of Jewish law, but it has these interpretations. It has Midrash interwoven in it. Some Midrashim were written separately. Some Midrashim we only have pieces of. And what this book is from, uh, what this translation is from, is from a book called Sefer HaAgadah, which in translation means the Book of Legend. And um, two Jewish scholars about uh, 110 years ago or so went through the Talmud and went through the whole Midrashic literature and categorized it by topic, which was a huge, huge thing and made things easier for people like me. So instead of 
having to go hither and thither to find certain uh, topics discussed in a systemic way. They categorized, and that's what this translation is from. And um, some of this material is, uh, or I should say all this material, is from different eras, from different midrashim. And um, I should also say that very much like Jewish tradition, uh, we're going to find a lot of uh, various views. And one last thing I want to say, because I think that for those of you who haven't studied, sometimes it's unclear, it seems like they're just making stuff up and they're just grabbing things. And I should explain the rabbinic worldview of, uh, of Scripture, and they believe that Scripture was uh, intertextual, which is a fancy way of saying what they said, which is that the Bible should not be read chronologically. There's no beginning, there's no end. They might take one verse from, say, the uh, book of Genesis and apply it to something in the book of Job which we're going to see. They believe that it's all interrelated. It's all part of one tradition. You can take that or leave that, but that's their MO. So I think that, um, you know, uh, for those of you who are new to this type of literature, um, that might be confusing. Um, but uh, I think what's uh, important for us is um, to sort of uh, try and figure out what are they getting at here? Um, what is their uh, objective? What are they responding to? What's bothering them? And maybe what's the, without, without you know, us necessarily arguing about theology um, and theological views, let's try and understand how they thought. And you don't have to agree with it at all, obviously. But um, let's try and figure this out. So I think we should jump right into it. Yose ben Yohanan of Jerusalem said, Let your house be opened wide, and let the poor be members of your household. Let your house be opened wide. What does this mean? It means that a man's house should be opened wide to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, like Job, who provided his houses with four doors. And why did Job provide four doors for his house? In order that the poor should not be put to the distress of having to go around the entire house. He who came from the north could enter directly through the north door. He who came from the south could enter directly through the south door, and likewise from the other directions. And let the poor be members of your household. This does not mean that they should actually become members of your household, but that the poor should be able to talk freely about what they had to eat and drink in your house, just as the poor talked freely about what they had eaten and drunk in Job's house. When one man met another, he would ask, Where are you coming from? From Job's house. Or, Where are you coming from? To Job's house. When the great calamity befell Job, he pleaded with the Holy One, Master of the universe, did I not feed the hungry? Give drink to the thirsty and clothe the naked? The Holy One answered Job, Job, you have not yet reached half the measure of hospitality extended by Abraham. You sat in your house waiting for guests to come to you. To him who was accustomed to eat wheat bread, you gave wheat bread. To him who was accustomed to eat meat, you gave meat. And to him who was accustomed to drink wine, you gave wine. But Abraham did not act thus. He went out, getting about in the world. When he met prospective guests, he brought them to his house. Even to him who was not accustomed to eat wheat bread, he gave wheat bread. To him who was not accustomed to eat meat, he gave meat. And to him who was not accustomed to drink wine, he gave wine. Not only that, but he got busy and built spacious mansions along the highways, and stocked them with food and drink, so that whoever entered ate, drank, and blessed heaven. Therefore, unusual satisfaction was given to Abraham, and whatever any person requested was to be found in his house. 
So what Yossi ben Yochanan is uh, quoting here is basically a variation of uh, early tradition um, from, I mentioned this book called the Mishnah. One section of the Mishnah is called uh, Pirkei Avot, which translates as ethics of our fathers or chapters of our fathers. And unlike most of the Mishnah, uh, the, this section of the Mishnah, the Pirkei Avot, is a lot of sort of uh, what you would call ethical axioms and ethical instructions rather than legal material. And this is a classic uh, statement. This is a classic rabbinic statement. Let your house be open wide and let the poor be members of your household. So Yossi ben Yochanan is quoting that here, and now they're going to uh, somehow relate this to Job. So they're ascribing, we don't really necessarily see this in the actual book of Job, but they're, uh, as gentlemen said before, they're adding certain details, and they're telling, uh, this is all before, theoretically, all the bad stuff happened to Job, and they're telling about what kind of person Job was, right? They're filling in those blanks, which is sometimes one of the things that Midrash does. You could say that this starts out um, teaching a practical ethical lesson um, or a couple practical lessons. One, you know, keeping, you know, being hospitable and opening your house. Also, it says specifically open your house to poor people. Also, there's the uh, suggestion here that um, you shouldn't embarrass them. Uh, you should be uh, compassionate and not, you know, somehow point out their poverty-stricken state. And then the tone changes to something else. What's Job questioning here? Why is he suffering if he's done good? Yeah, so, right, that's the whole question. Job's been this great guy, and look, he opened up his house to poor people and being, being very selfless. And what's the point of inflicting all this terrible suffering on me? I haven't I been a good person? Why should this happen to me? And God says, uh, how does God respond? You haven't been as good. You haven't been as good as Abraham. And Abraham is, um, whether you buy into this or not, he's considered uh, the role model, or I should say not so much the role model, as the exemplar of ethical behavior uh, a lot of times. The classic case is uh, that of uh, the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And um, uh, he's viewed uh, uh, later by the rabbis in later tradition, Abraham is, is viewed almost, you know, this is maybe the wrong word, but heroically. Because remember, Abraham argues with God, right? God, God lets Abraham in on the knowledge um, I'm going to destroy this area. These people are horrible. I'm going to destroy it. And what does Abraham do? He actually uh, argues with God, number one, which is pretty audacious. And from that, we extrapolate the tradition of being able to argue with God. And secondly, um, it shows Abraham's sense of um, the importance of life, even the life of evil people that he's willing to take this step. So, so Abraham is, um, is considered a moral exemplar. I would say that he, you know, that's his, maybe his best moment, and maybe his worst moment is when he doesn't argue with God, when God says, um, you know, go sacrifice your son Isaac. I think that, you know, uh, and this, this is Monday morning quarterbacking or whatever they call it. <laughs> I'm saying how Abraham should have acted, but he should have 
maybe argued with God there, but in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, he does. So God says, um, you're complaining to me, and you're still, you still don't approach the level of Abraham. So Abraham is proactive in a way that Job isn't. Job sort of lets people uh, come to his house, and Abraham is actually making that extra effort to go out. And by the way, in the very beginning of the narrative, when it first starts talking about uh, Abraham and, and Sarah and the family leaving, um, uh, leaving their homeland and going out, it says in the biblical text they gathered various souls, and, and the literal meaning is, you know, they, um, they, you know, uh, people sort of uh, latched onto them along the way. But the way the rabbis interpret that metaphorically is they brought people into community, so. Um, not just physically, but they brought people into the tradition as they were making their way to the land of Israel. So this is sort of hearkening back to that, and as you said, uh, one difference is Abraham being proactive in a way that Job isn't. Yes, it was great that Job was um, providing for poor people, but he was doing accordingly. He was, he was doing what needed to be done, and Abraham is actually taking this extra step, going even further, not just um, supplying the poor people with their basic needs, but, you know, getting them something really, really great. It's, uh, it's um, you know, it's, it's uh, I was, I was going to come up with a silly metaphor, but Abraham was um, taking it to a, a whole other level. He wasn't just doing the basic stuff. He was going beyond that, right? Let's be clear. Does it say in the Bible anything about Abraham building these great, you know, um, quality inns and along the way between Iraq and the land of Israel? No. So this is something that they're, this is a story that they're coming up with. But the, the, but I think we're clear about the point, right? It's about going those extra steps ethically, whether or not this actually took place literally. You know, they, um, they do this all the time. Um, you have the story about Jacob and Esau, Right, and when they're in their mother's womb, it, the biblical text talks about these two uh, uh, these two embryos, you know, struggling uh, inside their mother mother's body. These two nations fighting, and um, um, you know, one of the things that the rabbis do is they come up with these sort of uh, parables, these stories, and uh, one of these stories, one of these midrashim, um, and there's a point to this long editorial comment I'm making. Um, one of the things that they try and do, if you look at the actual biblical text, Jacob isn't very nice to his brother Esau in certain ways. You know, Esau might not be a very deep person, but Jacob's not terribly nice. So when the rabbis, some rabbis, when they're trying to explain Jacob's behavior, they go as far as to demonize Esau. And they say, well, you know, in this one Midrash, they say, well, Jacob and Esau are struggling because every time they approach a synagogue or a, a, or a Beit Midrash, which is a house of study, which is totally anachronistic, because in the time of uh, the patriarchs and matriarchs, there were no synagogues yet. There were no Beit Bate Midrash. There were no houses of study. So they say what the struggle is, and stop me if I'm, I could be not making any sense at all. They say part of the struggle is every time they're approaching these holy places, Jacob is trying to leave his mother's body, and they say every time they're passing by brothels, Esau is trying to uh, get out of his mother's body. And that's, that's, you know, that's, 
that's, you know, really, uh, you know, taking it really far, and it's not in the biblical text, but they're doing that here. And by the way, we do that too in our culture, right? Um, I don't think they do this anymore, but even, um, you know, I can remember, I'm 50 years old, and I can remember at uh, certain points, at some point or another, at least I heard this, um, that um, George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and then came clean about it and said, you know, I, I, I cannot tell a lie. And from that story, we learn that Washington, George Washington, was this really honorable, mature person. And, but that didn't really happen. But it's a story that tries to bring out certain characteristics associated with a person. I think they're, they're doing that here with Abraham when we see the mansions. Because on a certain level, it's ridiculous, but they're trying to make a certain point here. Uh, that's, my, that's my long editorial exposition. They're using Job to teach you about going, uh, you said a hundredfold, going the extra mile in terms of hospitality. So one part of this is just practical. They're always trying to teach. Uh, uh, it's considered a major mitzvah, a major commandment, a major uh, a deed of kindness to um, uh, welcome visitors and be hospitable to travelers. Um, so right, right now here, they're using the Job story just to teach that brass. Th that's totally brass tacks. In your personal life, there's nothing complex theologically. In, in per your personal life, you should be hospitable to others. And Abraham's a key figure in that for a bunch of reasons. I mentioned the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And, uh, you know, uh, what was the great, you know, according to the tradition, what was one of the greatest sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's how they treated strangers, how they treated people who didn't stick out. Um, you remember um, when the angels come, and fortunately they're angels so they can protect themselves, but you remember that the people of Sodom tried to assault them. That's exactly what you shouldn't do. That's the worst thing you can do. And remember that Abraham, first, before that, welcomes these angels in. So uh, you never, you're never, one is, ne I should say one, a human being, a person is never finished with this process. There's always more to do um, when you start thinking about, and, and, and maybe you could add to that when you start thinking about your suffering, there's always more that you need to be doing. And there's this, you know, there's a couple of rabbinical axioms that makes me think of, you know, that you should, um, you should repent one day before your death. And uh, that's, that's meant to be a sort of ironic statement because you really don't know exactly, um, usually, the day before you die. So you need to be uh, always working uh, towards uh, uh, changing yourself, towards trans ethical transformation. And they also say, by the way, that you, you never should stop learning. You should never stop studying. That should go to the very end. I mean, one of the things that um, uh, drives uh, me crazy is the way that some people uh, look at bar and bat mitzvahs, um, the, the ceremony that uh, uh, Jewish adolescents have, where they usually read from the Bible and say the blessings before the reading of the Bible. And in this American, or I should say North American, America and Canada, United States and Canada, the way that a lot of people look at that is that it's a graduation. But it's actually not a graduation, it's an initiation. It's just the start. And learning is never supposed to stop. So just like ethical transformation, working on your own ethical transformation, is supposed to be a lifelong process until you die. Absolutely, so is study. And that's something the rabbis said over and over again. So maybe after making the argument that 
the actual text of Job is subversive in that it says just being good isn't enough. You might still suffer and, and you can't expect any reward. And by the way, this book, this section of the Mishnah, Pirkei Avot, there's this line in it that says, you know, you should serve the master. Um, uh, there, well, there's a couple lines I can think of, but one is you should serve the master, i.e. God, without any expectation of reward. And another line that says you should serve God out of love, not out of fear. So, you know, that goes, but you're right. Maybe this text is sort of sneaking in the idea that, well, actually, maybe if you're, if you're good enough, maybe you will be rewarded. So it contradicts the previous text, right? You could say that maybe it con possibly it contradicts the theology of the text that we just wrote, not that we just wrote, that we just read, I mean, meant to say, and maybe it even contradicts um, uh, the actual text of Job, the biblical text of Job itself. Why might they do that? Well, it could be um, they were telling people this, they just wanted to ensure that, or, or make the point that people behave ethically, but maybe they're also trying to um, comfort people on a certain level and say that, you know, you know, that's one of the things, that's one of their jobs uh, of any clergy person, right, is to give people, uh, especially people who are suffering, give them some hope rather than say, you know, there's no hope, everything's terrible, you can't understand any of this, tough, just deal with it. Uh, you also want to give some people some hope, so maybe you, maybe you uh, compromise a little bit um, and maybe, you, maybe there's an internal contradiction in your teaching that on the one hand you say there's no reward, but on the other, stand, other hand you're still telling people it pays off to be good, it pays off to be an ethical person even if you're suffering. So I, I, you know, sort of read this, you know, that aspect that you just brought out, um, that not only are they trying to get people to behave in, decent, in a decent fashion, but maybe they're also trying to give people some hope, you know, because uh, people do suffer all the time, and you can't go, well, I guess you could, but, you know, you really don't want to go through life without any hope. If you're, if you're, uh, if you have a community, and people in your community are suffering, you want to be supportive and give them hope um, and, and not engage in a theological treatise in the way that some of Job's friends do. You want to, you got, want to give some people some comfort. And there's actually a, a term, a Hebrew term, uh, nechemta, and nechemta means um, a, a word or a sentence of comfort that they often put at the end of these midrashim. And we think that originally they might have been sermons that people wrote down. And so you don't, you don't end a sermon, right? Uh, everything is terrible, we're all gonna die. <laughs> or you, I, I guess you could, but um, that's not the point. You wanna end uh, affirmatively, you wanna end with some hope. This is sort of, as we were saying before, they're changing the question. In a way they're saying you're not, you haven't been asking the right question. It's the, the wrong question is to say, why do these people suffer? Rather the question should be, what can you do um, and, um, and to direct people outward, um, away from their own suffering, and uh, even when you're suffering, to be thinking about other people's suffering. Um, and I think that's a, you know, here's an editorial comment. Uh, here's, here's my theology here. I think this is, would be a great lesson for a lot of people in our society uh, who are, uh, you know, we have such, uh, well, I'm totally editorializing, but we sort of enshrine narcissism and self-centeredness so much in this society 
uh, or in certain parts of our society, I'm not going to say all of society, or certain individuals, and here it's saying you've got to look outside yourself. And there's maybe other people, not just who are worse off, but even in the midst of your suffering, you need to be thinking other people, thinking of other people. And you need to be asking a, a different question, not why am I suffering, but what can I do more to help others? So it's, you know, a, a, I guess a more cynical way of saying, saying this is they're sidestepping this, uh, this question of theodicy and they're saying something, they're teaching you something instead. They're just not even trying to exactly respond to that directly but using this moment to teach something else entirely. Two different ways of responding to a crisis or to suffering, and you can uh, aspire to be like Abraham. And by the way, it is unfair, you know, that, uh, you know, and I pointed out before, you could find the flaws in all the people in the Bible. You know, sometimes when I'm teaching about different biblical figures, they're like, wait, you can't talk about that person that way. And it's like, yes, I can. It's in the text, and they were human beings, and they were imperfect, and they were flawed. So you're right, it's totally unfair to make Abraham out to be like this perfect superstar. But they're trying to, you know, draw these sharp contrasts as part of their teaching. And to, to get back to that point, um, you know, it's, um, um, you know, it's, it's thoughtfulness versus knee-jerk reaction. That's, that's part of it. And um, I do think that they're not necessarily responding to this question of suffering, but they are trying to get people to a different place in terms of how you respond to suffering. In other words, they're not necessarily explaining suffering in some of these midrashim. And I think if you go back to the book of Job, it doesn't really, I think that's where it ends, it doesn't really give, at least in my opinion, a satisfying understanding. This happens, this bad stuff happens because X, Y, and Z. But it does shift the nature of how you maybe can respond to suffering and how you can uh, perceive suffering and what you should do with it. You know, you could say this is all ahistorical, what they're saying, or inaccurate, but they're trying to bring out different valences. And it is a different, you know, uh, rabbis did reinterpret things radically in certain cases because um, they were trying to get at certain issues. Let's be clear, when clergy give sermons, or non-clergy give sermons for that matter, they're also giving interpretations. And they're also responding to uh, scripture, they're responding to certain texts in their personal way, and they're trying to get something across. Um, so maybe you're not doing a literal reading, and maybe you're not trying to understand exactly what was being said and have a perfect translation, but you're using the text as a springboard to teach certain things. And that's certainly what they were doing here. And we think that... Um, you know, in certain cases, this is actually maybe students recording what their teachers said, you know, for, for future generations. And a lot of this was, uh, we think, passed on orally for, for many, 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 many years before being written, written down. It's hard to trace all of this. This is a conversation with the text. There's a, a book um, called uh, The Mikraot Gidolot, uh, which you would translate as the... Um, enhanced or expanded Bible, and this is, you know, printing presses, this, you know, this is a great thing that they use the printing press for, is um, uh, you have the biblical text, and you have all kinds of commentaries around the biblical text, uh, people from different parts of the world writing in different centuries, and uh, I can't remember exactly when this was first printed up, 
But that's exactly, uh, and sometimes these different commentators are arguing with each other, and that's exactly what it is. It's a conversation with the text. This is a dialogue. It's not a literal interpretation. This is a dialogue. And it's dialogue between different people. We looked at different people in different times just tonight in a very small way. So there's, there's what, what is the cutoff for contributions? There's, there's, there's no cutoff. It's an ongoing, evolving process. Um, so really, you know, uh, I think it's, um, I think we don't know, living in the present, you know, which things that we say uh, now are valuable. I think that's determined by future generations. What gets preserved, what's considered. I mean, you know, you could look at books which people thought were brilliant at the time and now they just look terrible and, you know, they didn't last. So I think part of, you know, that is, um, you know, there's no single authority who says, you know, this, you know, this stays and this doesn't stay. I think that's partially a function of time. And then to another way of addressing that is, this is, you know, interpretive material. And there's this whole other category of literature called halakha, which literally means the way. Um, but it, it's Jewish law. And um, it's like we have law in this country. You know, we have sort of the basic laws, we have the Constitution, and then many years of tradition and arguments and cases get built upon that early text. So the earliest text is the Bible, and from there it goes to uh, the Mishnah and then the Talmud, and then codes in the Middle Ages, and uh, those are still being produced and still being argued about. Um, you know, when I was looking at certain... Um, mourning laws, uh, mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, there, there's, different, there's different rulings. So um, part of it depends on, you know, with specific questions, you know, which ruling you, you choose to follow. And there's lots of disagreement within the Jewish world. I mean, I'm not going to go into the certain, some of the things that you, you know, can never do, but, you know, um, there, there's lots of, there's a whole legal process, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And since we live in the world that we live in, you can either, you know, it depends on which, which authority you follow. And there's different authorities out there. But in terms of Midrash, I think it's an ongoing process. And future generations will determine what's valuable and what isn't valuable. There's some Midrashim that we have that are over 2,000 years old. And there's some that were written a few hundred years ago that we consider are valuable. Thank you all, and uh, look forward to the next time. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing on Midrash NYC, then please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes or any app that you like listening to us on. And if you're looking for a community committed to asking good questions and figuring out faith, justice, and love with Jesus, then we invite you to check out Forefront NYC, especially for this Easter, March 27. We have two locations, one in Manhattan and one in Brooklyn. You can go to our site at ForefrontNYC.com to learn more. Thanks so much, and we hope to see you on Easter or sometime soon.